Today we're reading from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. They call out to the Most High. Although they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Thank you, brother. You may be seated this morning. And let's pray together as we come to this remarkable passage of Scripture in God's Word. Father, thank you again for the fact that we have your word, for the fact that you have, through the men who composed these books of Scripture, breathed them out by your Holy Spirit, that these aren't just the words of of these men's ruminations and speculations and interpretations, but these are the words that you would have had them speak, Father, and that they did speak and that were recorded precisely and perfectly, and that you have preserved this word for us, for it is all profitable, and it is living, and it is active, and it is capable, Father, of transforming our lives by the renewal of our minds. And so would you continue that work today as we come to your word? Would you give us help to understand your word? And would you allow it to do its living and active work within us? And would you glorify yourself and help us to exalt you and to magnify you and to exult in you because of what we learn from your word today? Father, we love you and we ask all of these great blessings in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we have only just begun our study of the 12 minor prophets together. We still have four chapters to go in the first one of the minor prophets here in Hosea. And already we have learned a ton, haven't we? From what God reveals to us about His own character, His own nature, about the character and nature of human beings in our sinfulness, about the great contrast 
between our persistent unfaithfulness to God and His great unfailing faithfulness towards us. We've learned a ton about His purposes, not only to judge sin and wickedness in His holiness, in His righteousness, but also to forgive and to justify and to heal and to purify sinners in His great mercy and in His steadfast love. One of the greatest, most awesome realities that God reveals in His Word and that is especially potent in the writings of the prophets like we're looking at here is the reality of what we might call God's emotions or God's affections. He speaks a lot, doesn't He, about His inner self and His inner life, about the anger that He describes Himself at feeling towards sin, and at the same time about the compassion that He has within Himself towards sinners. And the host of other emotions that God's Word ascribes to Him, like joy and grief and sorrow and love, The Scriptures are absolutely packed full of places where God talks about Himself, describes Himself in those kinds of ways, in terms of what we call in our vernacular emotions, feelings. Maybe the better word is affections, especially as we're talking about God. One of the most vivid passages of Scripture where God speaks about Himself in those kinds of terms is right here. In Hosea chapter 11, which Kevin just read for us, he speaks of the tenderness of his love as a father raising a little child, as a gentle, kind-hearted farmer who treats his animals, his livestock, with kindness and not, not with cruelty. Then he speaks also of his rage. And his wrath against sinners who have been ungrateful for his kindness and his love. Then he speaks again about the great depths of his compassion and love towards sinners in spite of their sin. And his purposes for both justice and mercy to be accomplished for them. Here's the thing, and this this is what I want us to focus on and glean from this passage as we meditate on it together today. The thing is, we have got to be very, very careful how we understand these things from God's Word when He talks about His own emotions. Because it's possible, and it's actually really, really easy, and it's actually really, really common to misunderstand, to understand God's emotions the wrong way in one of two ways. Even though, again, the Bible never actually uses the word emotions. It's a word that we give to these expressions that are described here in Scripture, like anger and sorrow and compassion and love. We have to understand rightly what God means when He says these things about Himself. One way to misunderstand these things about God is to try to understand God's emotions or God's affections as being identical to our own. Human, finite experiences, especially as sinners, 
of the same kinds of feelings or emotions that we have. We can't identify God's with ours in a one-for-one way of correspondence. Now, on the other side of the coin, the other, the other way to misunderstand the opposite error is to conclude that what God is describing about Himself has absolutely no correlation at all, nothing at all in common with what we as human beings experience emotionally. And there are all kinds of people who have made both of those errors and, and are doing that, that today. We don't want to say that God is like us too much and lose sight of the ways that He is qualitatively and transcendently different as the Creator from how we are as the creatures, right? But at the same time, we've got to take God at His Word and let His Word help us understand what He's revealing about who He is, including how He feels, so to speak, about His creation. And this chapter is a really good place to think those kinds of things through so that we can understand rightly, so that we can know our God and be able to serve Him and honor Him and love Him and worship Him as the God who He really actually is. So we're going to look together at this beautiful chapter in God's Word this morning and and we're going to let it help us think rightly about the God who is love the God who we love because He has first loved us. Chapter 11 opens with an image, picture, that every single parent who's ever raised a child can instantly identify with. It's the picture of the warm, tender, compassionate, heartfelt love of a good, kind, gentle, caring father for his little child. Now we've had a lot of those, right, introduced to us. A lot of little ones come into the world and the families of our congregation over the past few years. Six babies recently, by my count, one more on the way, or five recently, one more on the way. Little Ruth Dantzler, who's going to make her grand entrance on the scene before too much longer. And we've all seen every time one of these little ones is born and, and the parents bring the little one to church for the first time, we've seen that, you know, they look tired, they look a little bleary because they're not sleeping like they used to, and mom's been through a lot recently, but, but through the cloud of fatigue, there's this beaming look, right, of pride and love and warmth and tenderheartedness and compassion that these parents, adoration, that these parents feel for those little ones that God has given to them. And, and all of us who have raised little ones ourselves can remember back to those first days and how amazing those brand new feelings of affection and adoration and love were in our, our own hearts when God gave our children to us. When Israel was a child, I loved him. God says of himself right there in verse 1. And that's what he means. Something similar, something analogous to the way any father loves affectionately their little child. And out of Egypt I called my son. God says, referring of course back to the Exodus where God 
had compassion on his people and delivered them out of their captivity, their slavery, the, the oppression that they had suffered for, for 400 years under the pharaohs after Joseph's time. They hadn't done anything special or noble in order to endear themselves to God. They were sinful descendants of Abraham as much as anyone else in the world was. And yet God had compassion. God had favor upon them. And that favor was, was no more the result of something about them that was special, something they did to earn it, than, than when God had favor on Abraham himself and called him out of Ur, even though Abraham didn't know God. He was a pagan. He was a fallen sinner like everyone else in the world. God has mercy on whomever God wills to have mercy, Paul says in Romans 9.18. And he had mercy and compassion on the descendants of Abraham, on the sons of Israel, while they languished and suffered there in Egypt. God felt compassion for them. God felt love for them. And so, purely out of his loving, compassionate heart, he called them out of Egypt. And he brought them through the wilderness. And in spite of the fact that that Their hearts were hard to him. Their hearts were ungrateful to him. They grumbled. They sinned against him after he had brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and the rest. Still, he mercifully and faithfully brought them into the promised land. In their youth in Egypt, God loved them compassionately as a father loves a little child. But the more they were called the more they went away, the more they turned away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, the the pagan gods of the pagan people. They kept burning offerings to idols in spite of what God had done for them. They continued to disobey Him. In spite of His faithfulness to them, they became more and more unfaithful. In spite of His great fatherly tenderness and love for them, they despised Him more and more and more. Until we get to this place here in Hosea. Think about about the equivalent on a human level. It's absolutely tragic, isn't it? It's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? When children rebel against loving parents. When they turn their backs on the parents who raised them up and cared for them and loved them and fed them and protected them and provided for them. When, when children just turn and wander off into lives of sin and destruction, it's heartbreaking to see. I've, I have a lot of friends who are living that pain of watching, remembering back when you, when you first had this little one in your arms and they were crawling and you were helping them learn how to walk and now, now they're not walking like that sweetness anymore. They've, they've run off and they've gone astray. And it's heartbreaking, isn't it? How much more tragic, how much more sorrowful when the eternally faithful, unfathomably loving and merciful God is forsaken by the ones who He has loved like little children. How often they rebelled against Him and grieved Him. Psalm 78.40 says, The heart of God grieves When those who He has made in His image wander from Him and flee from Him. 
the sin and disobedience, the hard-hearted unfaithfulness of His people whom He's done so much for grieves God. He reveals, He says in His Word, like a loving father is grieved by an unloving child or like a loving husband is grieved by an unfaithful wife, which is the whole message, right, of the book of Hosea. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 6, verse 9. I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and after their eyes that go after their idols. God loves more deeply than we can possibly ever imagine. He grieves more deeply than we can ever possibly relate to when the ones whom He has loved go astray from Him. And the language He uses here in chapter 11 brings tears, I think, they do to my eyes at least, to the eyes of any parent who has tenderly loved a child. Verse 3, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk and took them up by their arms. You remember that day with your little ones? When you taught them to walk, when you, when you stooped down to lift them up, when you were there reaching out to make sure they wouldn't fall and hit their head and get hurt when they were taking those first hesitant, uncertain, unsteady steps. It's, it's basically, it's just controlled falling here and it's barely under control. And so you put your hands out to help them learn. And you're patient with them as they learn to do better, to get stronger. You remember how that felt when your child took their first steps? How proud you were? How joyful it made you to see them stand on their own feet for the first time? How full of mercy you were? How full of, you remember how full of compassion you were every time they would fall? Bumped their head, split their... One time Justin <laughs> fell when he was a toddler and he hit you know the, the little track on the bottom of the closet where the rolling doors roll and he hit that and his, one of his teeth just went right through his lip and he's bleeding everywhere. And you remember how that feels as a parent when, you're, when your little one hurts themselves like that or they got a big old bump on their head or they skin their knee? Every time they stumble, doesn't your heart hurt when your little ones hurt? That's called compassion. Doesn't that compassion, doesn't that empathy then drive you to just want to scoop them up and hold them and clean them up and wash their wounds and bandage them all up so their pain will go away and they can heal? God's saying, yeah. His his heart is this kind of a heart. His love, His compassion, His care caused Him to do all of those things for Israel. Every time they kept stumbling and falling and injuring themselves and and, and walking the way that leads to destruction, He'd lift them up, He'd scoop them up, He'd try to heal them, but, verse 3, they did not know that I healed them. They were so consumed with themselves that they were oblivious to His care. And his love. They were, they were indifferent towards him. I led them with cords of kindness, he says in verse 4. He's, he's shifting images now from, from the picture of a caring father to now the picture of a compassionate farmer who doesn't beat his animals. 
Right? The angry, cruel farmer who's out there just flogging them to get them. No, no God's, God's the kind of God. God would be the kind of farmer who, who's compassionate even to the animal and leads them with cords of kindness. Gently. Tenderly. Not using whips, but bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Right? Not, not the farmer who's always just cruelly yanking on them. Because he doesn't care. I bent down to them, stooping down gently to the little lambs and feeding them. This is who God reveals himself to be. He's the God who stoops, He's the God who cares, He's the God who condescends, He's the God who reaches down to us when we can't and when we won't reach up to Him. But Israel, even though this is how God was with them, for years, centuries, they were recalcitrant. They were hard-hearted. They were stubborn. And we've seen it in such painful detail, right? In the first ten chapters of this book, hard towards the God who was so soft towards them, indifferent towards the one who so deeply cared for them, unfaithful to the one who was so unfailingly faithful to them. And so, verse 5, He who called them out of Egypt says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt geographically, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. This is what we saw last week too. He's, he's giving them over now to what their unfaithful hearts have have lusted for and craved in their sin. They've forsaken the fountain, so He's leaving them with their own hand-hewed, empty, dry cisterns. If you refuse the living waters, then you're just going to choke on the dust. They've sown to the wind, and so He's leaving them to reap the whirlwind. And so He says, the sword... The sword of the merciless, godless Assyrians. Remember, Israel had tried to appeal to them instead of putting their trust and their confidence in the Lord. And so he says, the sword of those Assyrians will rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels, because of the own wisdom, their own wisdom after which they went to Assyria instead of to God. The way that seemed wise to them will lead to their destruction. When the Assyrians invade, when they leave nothing standing, none of their fortified walls, none of their tall walls, none of their iron-barred gates, none of the earthly things that they've anchored their hopes to instead of God will stand. Everything that they've trusted and leaned on instead of Him will fall, will fail, will let them down, will prove to be as unworthy of their trust as they actually are. He loved them. He called them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He rained manna from heaven. He taught them to walk. He stooped down to them. He healed them tenderly, lovingly, compassionately. And they just blew Him off continually and put their trust and gave their hearts and their devotion to worthless things. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. They're incurable. And so, when the trouble that they have invited comes, 
even if they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And it came, the trouble came. It started with deportations of Israel's citizens at the hands of the Assyrians. Here's how it's recorded. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and, and they took them into exile. The Reubenites, the Gadites, the, half the whole tribe of Manasseh brought them to Hala and Havor and Hara and the river of Gozan to this day up in Assyria. First Chronicles chapter 5. And then the Assyrian king Shalmaneser came after that and laid siege to the capital city of Samaria. It fell three years later in 722 BC to Sargon II of Assyria, and every major city in Israel was soon to follow. Some of the people found their way one way or the other down to Judah. Some were scattered, some were deported, many were killed. Some headed for the hills and headed south to live in the southern kingdom. But the kingdom itself, the earthly nation itself, Israel in the north was decimated historically, verifiably, because they turned their backs on God again and again and again until He let them go and raised them up no more. But the tone shifts, doesn't it, in verses 8 and 9? Pretty dramatically, right? Pretty drastically back now from divine displeasure, from the grief that that God felt over their sin, from the wrath that God had towards their unfaithfulness. It shifts back now to divine compassion. He knows what's coming, obviously. He's the all-knowing God and He knows all things because He's decreed them all since before the foundations of the earth, and yet his heart says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? He's loved them so much for so long. How can I hand you over, O Israel? Even though they brought it all on themselves, even though they have absolutely spurned every last gesture of his goodness and kindness and faithfulness towards them, still, still he loves them. Just like a father loves his children, no matter what. These these friends of mine that I know whose children have gone astray and rebelled and plunged themselves in all kinds of godlessness and worldliness and unrighteousness and immorality and destructiveness, even though though the parents have had to let those kids go and, and in some cases kick them out of the house, they still love them. Their hearts still break for them, long for them. Still they pray, still they hope and long for them to come back like the prodigal son in Luke 15. So that, like the prodigal father, they can go running out there overflowing with joy and embrace them and welcome them home. This is the heart of God. Jesus revealed it right there in the parable of the prodigal in Luke 15. It's the same heart that God expresses here in the words of Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? We don't know much about those cities except what Deuteronomy 29 tells us. 
which is that they were near Sodom and Gomorrah. And that they got swallowed up in the judgment of God that poured down from heaven on that wicked place. So, same thing here. Even though Israel will get swallowed up, historically, even though in His holy wrath He will pour out justice on them, at the same time, God's loving, fatherly heart grieves with compassion for them. What you have to see here is that God's not changing. He's not vacillating. He doesn't experience emotion in the same way we do. He's not really angry one minute and then, oh, move to compassion the next minute and he's in a different mood. He's always all that he is. He can't be anything other than he is. He can't be more than he is. He can't be less than he is. He can't change. But look at how he speaks of himself in verse 9. My heart recoils within me, says the Almighty God, at the thought of what's going to happen to Israel according to His purposes of judgment and His hatred of their sin. Still, at the same time, my compassion grows warm and tender, the holy righteous judge of the whole earth says, because that's who He is. Always holy, always just, always righteous, always hating sin, and compassionate and warm and tender and merciful and loving, always and unchangeably. And so at the same time that he purposes their punishment, here he also resolves to redeem them. Verse 9 again, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not utterly destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. See, here's where he says, yes, I have these affections within me, but they're not exactly like yours. I'm not going to do what you would do. Because so often our emotions are detached from our will. But in God, they're not. I'm God and not a man. I'm the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. He means in the fullness of wrath, unrestrained by His also ever-present mercy. The all-knowing God who has sovereignly ordained and decreed everything since before the foundations of the world, He's not vacillating here. He's not waffling. He's not wringing His hand. What do I do? On the one hand, I'm rolling my butt on the other hand. He's not like that. Because he's not like me. He's not like you. He's not unsure of what to do. He's not ping-ponging between purposes because somehow he's internally conflicted by his feelings. Now that's, that's how we are. But not the eternal, holy, unchanging, perfect God of creation. So, in the fullness of his justice, judgment will be executed. Assyria will come. Israel will fall. Their cities will be destroyed. All of them. Never to be rebuilt. Their people will be put to the sword. Many of them. Others, many others, deported to Assyria. Assimilated forever into that pagan empire. But, some. Some. A few, a remnant would providentially flee south to Judah and throw their lot in with the southern kingdom. 
And even though Judah too would endure God's punishment at the hands of the Babylonians years later, by God's mercy they would return to their home, to Jerusalem from their exile, including the descendants of that remnant of the northern kingdom of Israel who fled south when the Assyrians invaded. That's what verses 10 and 11 speak of, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, first think with me about the way that God is talking about Himself here in these deeply emotional terms. First of all, understand the word emotion isn't found in your Bible anywhere. But something like what we call emotions are are, are everywhere in your Bible attributed to God. The word emotion wasn't used until after the Enlightenment. Before then, there were two other words that were used to speak about these feelings that we have within us. And they were passions and affections. In the ancient mind, passions always meant something that led to sin. It always meant something that was detached from our will and our mind and our purpose that just drove us irrationally to do all kinds of uncalculated things. And the early students of God's Word were very, very clear to say God doesn't have any of those. If that's what the word passion means, God doesn't have that. He doesn't have these these unrestrained feelings that overwhelm Him and that just just drive Him and cause Him to do things apart from His mind and will and, and purpose. But they were very, very careful to say still, the Bible clearly describes affections in God closely associated with his mind, identified with his purpose. So that you can say, Israel I loved as a child and so led them, called them up out of Egypt. I hated their sin and so poured out judgment. Got to be careful with understanding language like this. It's all too easy, like I said earlier, to understand wrongly in one of those two ways. The first one that equates God's affections with our own creaturely passions or emotions. And the other one that that tries to protect against doing that, but ends up denying that God has affections at all. Some people do that. Some people in a desire to protect God's infinite greatness and His transcendently pure and awesome nature as the unfathomably majestic and holy and perfect and unchangeable God. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important desire, right? That's a good desire. Massively important. Some people driven by that kind of reverent desire to uphold God's awesome nature as God end up saying that emotions are bad because usually in us they lead to bad things so often so God doesn't have any of them. Whenever God speaks about Himself like He does here, whenever He seems to be describing feelings that He has, they, they actually people teach He's not actually revealing to us that God has feelings or affections. He's just speaking in human terms, accommodated to our finiteness so that we can identify and relate to, but we shouldn't take that literally. They end up saying that God isn't describing any kind of inner reality of feelings or affections that He experiences. 
He's just talking about the outer reality of what his mind purposes and his will accomplishes in relation to his creation. They'll say he's not saying that he feels some sensation of affection for Israel. He's just saying what he did to lead them out of Israel or Egypt. It was a loving act. It was beneficial to them. After all, right, there are ways that God describes himself in the Bible that that we shouldn't take literally at all. God describes himself as having hands and arms. Deuteronomy 5, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Or he describes himself as having eyes. Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Or he describes himself in 1 Samuel 8 as having ears or a mouth in all kinds of places or even nostrils and and various other body parts. And we know, right, we know not to take those kinds of references as teaching that God has literal physical body parts, right? How do we know not to do that? Because God's Word tells us that He is a spirit, right? Jesus' own words, as God having become incarnate in a human body, says, God in His essence though, apart from incarnation, God in His eternal essence is Spirit. John 4.24 God in His essential nature is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17 Romans 1.20 1 John 4.12 On and on and on. So knowing, according to His Word, that He is Spirit, that He is invisible, we know that He doesn't actually have the hands and arms and eyes and mouth that He sometimes describes Himself as having, which means that when He speaks about those things, He's describing His Word, His works, in ways that human beings do, who have hands and arms and eyes and mouth, so that we can understand more easily. He's accommodating his revelation of himself to our humanness. So some people do say that's what he's also doing when he talks about his emotions or his affections like anger and sorrow and compassion and love. He's not actually describing something that, that, that he has going on on the inside, so to speak. He's, he's just speaking about what he does outwardly in terms that are accommodated to our humanness so that we can understand. Here's the difference, though. There's nothing in the Bible that defines God in an essential way that would rule out him having emotions or affections in the way that his being an invisible spirit rules out him having physical body parts, hands and arms and eyes and ears. Because those things would contradict each other, right? There's there's nothing that God reveals about himself in the Bible that would contradict is actually having inner emotions in terms that he speaks so clearly of in passages like this one. But the reason some people want to deny that he does is because what God does say about himself in Scripture is that he's unchanging and that he's unchangeable. We understand, right, the distinction between those two words. God doesn't change because He's not capable of changing or being changed by anything. Right? That's one of the main ways that God is absolutely different as the eternal Creator from us. From everything in His creation. Everything in creation changes constantly. But He alone 
is unchanging and unable to be changed by any of us or anything in creation, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. If If there was something out there somewhere that God depended on, like we depend on him for our existence, then, then, then he wouldn't be God, right? If there was anything out there that, that was necessary for his existence or for him to do his will, then that would mean that in that sense there was something that was at least potentially greater than him. Impossible. Something that could thwart his will. Impossible. No one can stay his hand. Because he's God, by definition... He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything from anyone, Paul proclaims in Acts 17.25, as if he, he depends on anyone for anything. And he says, this God, this independent, self-sufficient, self-existing God says, I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, do not change. Malachi 3 verse 6. With God, there is no variation or shadow due to change, James says in James 1.17. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8 affirms. It's impossible for God to change precisely because He's God. He's perfect. He can't become more than He is. He can't become less than He is. And nothing outside of him can cause him to become anything other than he is. So, that's at the core, see, of the difference between God the Creator and everything in his creation. Listen to how J.I. Packer sums it up. This way, God exists forever. And he is always the same. He does not grow older His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers nor lose those that he once had. He does not mature. He does not develop, get stronger, weaker, wiser as time goes by. He quotes A.W. Pink. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. The first and fundamental difference between the Creator and His creatures is that we are mutable, changeable. Our nature admits of change, whereas God is immutable, can never cease to be all that He is. Now that, see, is the reason why some people end up concluding that God cannot have feelings or emotions or affections. Because in our experience, those are things that change, right? And they're things that often get changed by things outside of us, right? If someone comes and whacks me in the head, it's going to cause, somebody's going to cause emotion to flare up in me beyond some control that I have over that. I might have control over what I do about it, but I'm going to feel it because of what they did to me. You can't do that to God. But there are dozens of places in the Bible where he says that the sin of his people provokes him to anger, which I do believe is just him accommodating his language to us. But we're not changing, we're not affecting some change in him. But he does relate to his creation. And when the creation changes, God responds. So, does it all mean that God doesn't actually experience anger in response 
to bad things that people do or, or joy in response to good things that people do. I don't think it means that. Otherwise, there's so much of Scripture that you just have to discount. And you end up with a, with a, with a God who is just pure will and force and absolute being and perfection, but not person. So God doesn't actually get provoked by things outside of himself in the same way that we do as finite creatures because he's vastly different than we are as the creator. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have anger in him, sorrow in him, compassion in him, love in him, joy in him as affections that he feels. It just means that we've got to be careful not to understand those things as working in him, functioning in him in in the same exact way that they function in us. Here's how... One theologian, Herman Bovink, says it. He says, Though unchangeable in himself, God lives the lives of his creatures and is not indifferent to their unchanging activities or their changing activities. God is intimately involved with your life. And when things change about you and about your life and your circumstances... God in relation to you cares about that more deeply than you can possibly know. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Many people have wrong notions about God's happiness as resulting from his absolute self-sufficiency and independence and immutability, unchangeability. Edwards says, It's true that God's glory and happiness are in and of himself, right? Uncaused or unaffected by anything outside of himself. They're infinite. They can't be added to. They're unchangeable for the whole and every part of which he is perfectly independent from every creature. But it does not follow, nor is it true, that God has no real, actual, proper delight and pleasure and happiness in any of his acts or communications in relation to his creature. God's delight, God's joy, God's sorrow, God's anger, God's compassion that he describes in his word are not just divinely accommodated figures of speech. Nothing about his unchangeable character requires us to believe that he does not really and actually possess genuine affection for his creation especially his image-bearing creation, he does. He doesn't change, but we do. And as the God who's not only transcendently greater than his creation, he is also the God who is imminently involved with his creation. And he cares about it. And as the eternal God who he is, he cares about it more deeply than we can ever possibly know or imagine or relate to. Because his care is infinitely greater than any care that we're even capable of, that we can even conceive of. Which does mean that he cares about you more deeply than you can ever possibly imagine. Which is why we draw near to the throne of grace, right? And cast our cares on him, Peter says, because we know that he cares for us. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says. God is love to the eternal maximum extent at every moment. He cannot change. 
because he cannot possibly be any more loving or any more just or any more good than he always and eternally is. So see, so see the unchangeableness of God doesn't mean that God doesn't care or have affections like love and anger and compassion. In fact, it means the very opposite. The unchangeableness of God means that those qualities of His character that He defines and reveals in His Word aren't subject to change like they are in us. They don't fluctuate like ours do, right? God doesn't have good days and bad days like we do. He doesn't... He doesn't get jerked around emotionally by changing circumstances or by His creation. He doesn't get overwhelmed. He's not prone to to fits and outbursts of anger like human beings are, like the false gods of the pagan religions are, right? Who, Who were imagined to operate exactly the same way that humans do. But God's different. He doesn't have those kinds of unstable, changing passions. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have affections, which I think is the right word for what he describes of himself in the Bible in places like here in Hosea 11. It just means that we've got to understand that because he's different than us, because he's higher than us, because his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours, that his affections are higher and different from ours in some important ways. Well, that's exactly what he says right here in verse 9, right? I won't execute burning anger or utterly destroy you. I'm not going to fly off the handle like you might, humans, because I'm not a human. I'm not a man. I'm not like you. I'm God and not a man. My anger is a holy anger. My mercy is a holy mercy. And I am in your midst. And I will not come in wrath means I will not just let wrath control me. I will do what I will do as the God who is always according to my will and my purpose and my mind, which is perfect. God's not prone to mood swings. God's not prone to flying off the handle. God's not prone to doing things that are not ultimately purposed. Unlike us, God's affections can never be separated from God's mind and God's will, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have affections. He clearly, over and over and over, wants us to know that he does. And that the good news is that because of his perfect mind and perfect will and holiness, it's always good when God manifests His affections and acts according to those and His will. So the fact that He's different from us in some really important ways does not mean that He isn't like us also in some really important ways. After all, we're made in His image, aren't we? My friend Brian Borgman, you remember him, he preached here in September. He writes this, he says... In order for us to understand ourselves, we must understand God in whose image we are made. And although there is an infinite difference between the transcendent, majestic, exalted God and us as His creatures, 
we still, we can look to God and see the perfect eternal one who possesses the glorious capacity to feel as a person. In that capacity, he shows the dignity of his person. And that we also were made in his image not only to think and not only to do, but also to feel. So when God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. He's not just speaking figuratively. He's not just talking about what he did outwardly in calling Israel out of Egypt. He's also revealing his heart towards them as the God who is love, his compassion for them, his divine affection for them, out of which the things that he does come. So there are some people who end up diminishing God's glory by equating God's inner affections with our own, compromising his transcendence as the unchangeable creator. May it never be. And there are some people who react against that by insisting that God is absolutely nothing like us at all. And so any verses that speak about his feelings, his emotions, his affections should only, under, should only be understood figuratively because they say God doesn't actually have affections. Which I believe compromises his eminence, his personhood, his personalness and his involvement as a divine person with his creation who cares about his creation more deeply than we can ever possibly conceive of. May it never be that we would strip God of that reality of who he is and reveals himself to be in his word. The right approach is to take God at his word and let his word interpret itself And let God define Himself as He would, as a God who is transcendently different from us, but also like us in some ways, including having inner affections like sorrow and grief and anger and compassion and love that aren't limited, that aren't shaped by by creatureliness like, like ours are, because He's not a creature. He's the eternal, unchangeable Creator. So don't read verses like verses 8 and 9 here of Hosea 11 through the lens of your own experience of emotion as a creature. But understand that God wants us to relate to how He feels in some way. And to the fact that even though sin enrages Him, He is a deeply compassionate person who cares and is merciful beyond our wildest dreams beyond anything we've ever experienced or seen or known in ourselves or anywhere else in this world, the transcendent God is merciful. That's how we have to understand the final verses of this chapter. Remember that in verses 6 and 7, God in His wrath had purposed punishment for Israel in their sin. And that in verses 8 and 9, the same unchangeable God in His unchanging compassion has resolved to redeem Israel. And so verse 10 says that when God roars like a lion, His children will come trembling back home to Him. And we've seen already how that refers to this remnant who fled the Assyrian invasion and went to Judah in the south. They would get taken captive eventually by the Babylonians and then brought home. At least that's part of what those verses speak of. There were descendants of the northern tribes who were spared even though the kingdom of Israel itself fell. 
And together with the survivors of the Babylonian exile, they came back to Jerusalem. And those children of Abraham, those children of Israel were preserved until finally from them a child was born. A son was given whose name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, their Messiah, long promised, long expected. Descended from Abraham and David, born in Bethlehem, named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Christ the Lord, all the fullness of God in human flesh. And when he was born, wise men came from the east seeking him. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They asked Herod in Jerusalem. And Herod decided to try to destroy this one who had been born king of the Jews by having all of the newly born boys in and around Bethlehem killed. But what happened? An angel appeared to Joseph and told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. And so they did and they stayed there until Herod died. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 2, And then he says this in Matthew 2.15. All that happened. They went to Egypt, stayed there till Herod died, and then came back to Israel from Egypt. All of that happened, Matthew says, in order to fulfill what was said by the prophet. And he means right here, Hosea 11 verse 1, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Ultimately, that son. Ultimately, Jesus, that child, that baby, is who God was talking about in Hosea 1.11. Now, when Hosea wrote it, when he spoke it, he was speaking and God through him was speaking to Israel, right? To the nation who he had loved and called out of Egypt in the Exodus way back when. But then they had turned away from him. So do you see God's motif? Do you see what fulfillment means according to the New Testament? It means means there's going to be someone who comes and relives every part of this Old Testament and gets it all right. Succeeds where Adam failed. A better exodus. A better high priest. A better sacrifice. A better king. A better prophet. A better temple. A better David. A better son. A better Israel. You see? Jesus recapitulates it all and makes it all perfect. The definitive New Testament interpretation of the ultimate fulfillment of the words of Hosea here came when Jesus Christ came up out of Egypt, the only begotten Son of God. Because He is the true Son. He is the ultimate seed of Abraham. He is the true Israel. He is the true outpouring of the great compassion and mercy and love of God who cares so unfathomably much, who so loved the sinful world, including you and including me, that God, eternal, would give His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal. That's how much God loves this wretched world anyway. So Christians who have believed all this, right, by His grace, 
who have been loved by God with such a great love as this, that we now, we should be called sons of God. Having been adopted as heirs of the promise with Jesus Christ, co-heirs, brothers of Jesus, by the adopting purposes of Almighty God who cares and loves that much. Christians in whose hearts this great unfathomable divine love has been shed abroad that we might comprehend its, its breadth and depth and height, Paul says in Ephesians, and be filled with all the fullness of God. You need to know this love of God and be confident of it. Be filled with all its fullness. Be confident that in Christ you have been loved to the uttermost by Almighty God. And so, because of that, nothing in all of creation can ever possibly separate you from that love. Amen? Because like Paul says in Romans 8, well, what are we going to say about these things? Right? Who, who can challenge any of this? What kind of an argument could be made against this? What kind of loophole is there in this? What kind of hole could you poke in it? You can't. It's the love of God. If God is for us, Who could possibly ever be against us? No creature, if God loves us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Are you confident of that? I know you're not worthy of that love. That's the point. Neither am I. His love doesn't depend on that. It's it's the love that loves anyway. You can't earn God's love. You can't change God's heart to make Him love you. He's the unchanging God who is love always to the uttermost and He has loved you to the uttermost. And there's nothing that can change that. Rest in it. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. Live in it and love the one who has so loved you. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, we have no way to compare your love to anything else in our experience in our world. But we rejoice in the unfathomable mystery of it all. Father, you truly are the God who does the unimaginable. Nobody could script this story but you. And so, Father, we praise you as the God who you are, who has loved us in spite of our sin, our waywardness, our turning against you, our running like sheep after our own way, and flitting like silly birds off after the things of this world instead of serving and trusting and loving you. And yet you gave your Son. And he came, and he lived, and he died, and he saved, and he redeemed And He loved us with this everlasting love. So Father, tune our hearts to love You, to serve You. Help us hate the things that You hate, including all the sin that remains in us. And help us to love the things that You love. All of the holiness and righteousness and goodness and purity and beauty that You reveal in Your Word and that is a part of Your own character. And help us to serve You, Father and glorify you and live for your pleasure. And we pray all of that in the great name of Jesus Christ who makes it all possible and who does it all. And in him we say amen. Amen.